by comparison. Uh, we might think of some of the more well-known ones like George Mueller, who trusted the Lord to provide for himself and the orphans he cared for over many decades. One famous story concerns Robert and Mary Moffat, two pioneer missionaries in South Africa and Botswana. During the first half of the 1800s, they labored in a remote area trying to reach the tribal people who lived there. And for that first decade, they could not report a single convert. And it seemed like the work that they were doing was just dead in the water, not going anywhere. Well, even the directors of the mission board began to question, is this really a wise endeavor? Is it really a good idea to have these people out here where they seem to be laboring to no avail? But they believed that one day they would see a harvest. On one occasion, a friend of theirs from England sent word to the Moffats in Africa and wanted to mail them a gift and wondered what would be appropriate. What would you like to have? And Mary Moffat responded in faith, despite having no converts and no church, she replied, send us a communion set. I'm sure it will soon be needed. And God honored her faith. As the Holy Spirit began to work in the hearts of some of the villagers and some of the people there, there were soon a group of six converts. A small church was formed. And the first Sunday that they were meeting and were going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the day before... The communion set arrived from England just in time for that first service. Just in time to see the answer to their prayers. And, you know, many stories like that could be told. In fact, some of us might even have our own stories of how God has provided for us in a need or has uh, answered a prayer right when it needed to be answered. But we might also walk away from stories like this or, or like the Moffats feeling a little bit like, spiritual midgets like yes missionaries on the fields of africa you know what tremendous faith they had but by comparison i feel like my faith is so small Uh, it actually just accentuates how weak my faith is in comparison you know here's some people who who show tremendous courage in the face of trials and adversity in face of danger itself and yet here i am as pretty uh, well-to-do American without many trials and troubles by comparison. And I find it difficult to trust God with the simple things of life. You know, compared to these giants of the faith, I feel a little bit like a kid scared of a shadow in his room. Nothing really to be afraid of, and yet I'm oftentimes afraid. Why is my faith so weak when theirs was so strong? Well, in the Gospels, Jesus calls his disciples on occasion men of little faith. And that designation, I think, fits me at times as well. Here's the thing about faith, and that's what we really want to talk about when we come to Psalm 27 today, is faith. The thing about it is it's really centered around the object, not so much the exercise of faith. But what is your faith in? To put it Clearly, and I think as this psalm does, the life of faith is fixed on the Lord. The life of faith is fixed on the Lord. If if you want a definition of what it is to live by faith, it's that. It's that our lives are anchored to God, fixed upon him. I'd like to turn our attention this morning to Psalm 27. And it's not 
perhaps as popular as, say, Psalm 23 or some others, but it's still one of the more well-known psalms. Uh, It's a marvelous declaration of confident faith. And it's this confidence in the psalm that really is drawn out. Really, Psalm 27 begins and ends with this confidence in the Lord. But for all of its confidence... The Psalms, not just this one, but all of the Psalms, never gloss over the difficulties of life, do they? It handles them straightforwardly. The Psalms express faith in the realities of life, not apart from them. And that's certainly the case in this Psalm of David, which you'll notice at the beginning, Psalm 27, it notes that this is a Psalm of David. Now, the exact setting of the Psalm is difficult, probably impossible to place. Some people tend to think that... uh, This may have been a psalm written out of David's experiences fleeing from Saul in the wilderness, possibly. Maybe it was written during David's fleeing from his son, Absalom. Again, we don't know. The point is, with this psalm and many others, they express universal experiences. So we don't necessarily have to place it at this point in David's life to really understand it. We understand this psalm because we know what it's like to feel lonely. We know what it's like to have enemies around us. We know what it's like to be spoken against, and so on. So, without tying it too directly to any event in David's life, we see here an exuberant and confident declaration of faith. In this psalm, I want us to see, in particular, faith on display. And I want us to see, first of all, faith's confidence. Faith's confidence. And starting in verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. And the word confident or confidence is key. In this psalm, it begins and ends with declarations of confidence in the Lord. Now, we use that term, confidence. It oftentimes makes us think of sort of a smug self-confidence. For instance, if you say somebody is a confident person, usually you're talking about someone who strides into the interview, this cocky, self-assured attitude. But that's not confident faith. No, it's the very opposite of the swaggering self-assurance. It's trusting wholly in the Lord. It's looking to him. It's being fixed on the Lord. We see faith's confidence, though. And again, this psalm just exposes, I might describe my faith in a lot of ways, but I'm not sure that confident would always be the word I would choose. I don't know about you. Sometimes my faith doesn't feel very confident, very solid. Sometimes it's a little bit wavering. Uh, Just as an example, take this. The Bible tells us, for instance, in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So right there, we're told, be anxious for nothing. And yet, rather than having confident faith, Sometimes I'm finding myself worrying, being anxious. We know the command, 
but we still worry. What about this situation? What about this or that outcome? What about this person? What's going to happen? And I'll bet all of us probably have lost sleep worrying over things just like that. You know, we find struggling with worry and fear a difficult battle. But then you turn to Psalm 27 and you find a man who had plenty of reasons to be anxious, plenty of reasons to be worried. He had enemies. He even talks here about armies being encamped against him and war rising up against me. And yet he has a confident faith. Look again at verse 1. He begins by saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So we have a declaration of a man who has enemies, yes, besieged by armies, threats of war hanging over him, yet he says, my heart shall not fear. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, where does this confident faith come from? Well, I think it's really the first word. Actually, in our Bibles, it's the first two words, but in Hebrew, it's one. The Lord. That's what gives him confidence. That's what gives the psalmist this kind of faith. It's the Lord. Uh, let me point out that the, the Lord is all caps here. So this is God's divine name, which uh, a lot of Hebrew scholars will say is pronounced Yahweh. And I'll, I'll continue to use the Lord throughout this passage. But no, it's his personal name. It's, it's the God of Israel is my salvation. It's, he is my light. Again, I want to really delve into this verse or these few verses here. Because we see his eyes are fixed on the Lord. And that's what gives him this confident faith. And the way he describes the Lord is significant. First of all, he says, he is my light. He is my light. Now, God is often described as light or being in terms of light. For instance, John writes, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Likewise, Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. And we note many other verses. His glory, he's often depicted as light. But the psalmist doesn't just say the Lord is light. He says the Lord is my light. The Lord illumines my life. What would otherwise be darkness and gloom is lit by the Lord himself. So the confident faith of the psalmist is in the Lord, in his light. Now darkness is, of course, the opposite of light. In the contrast here between faith and fear, David has no reason to fear the darkness. Why? Because the Lord is his light. So there's kind of a contrast here. That instead of living in darkness, instead of being afraid of the darkness, he says, Lord, you're my light. You're the lamp that shines into it. Now, I expect that some, some of us here, maybe when we were small children, were afraid of the dark. And perhaps... Perhaps even to this day, you don't really prefer the dark. And, you know, you have those little scratching sounds outside your window. And, you know, when everything's dark, you can't see what's there. It's hidden. And it can be a little bit alarming, sometimes a little creepy. You know, uh, there's just a whole lot of bad that can be concealed in darkness. In fact, darkness is oftentimes used in the Bible as sort of an image of evil, the, the forces of darkness, the, the prince of darkness. You know, all that goes along with this evil is darkness. So don't fear 
darkness. He's saying, I have the Lord as my light. Even though there are spiritual evils out there, there there's much evil conjured up against me. He says, the Lord's my light. I'm not going to be afraid. Not only is he, that is the Lord, his light, he also says that he is my salvation. You notice this in verse 1 as well. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Now, the word salvation can refer, of course, to salvation as we often use it in terms of eternal life, that God saves us from our sin. However, it can also refer to deliverance from enemies. For instance, Israel, when they were delivered out of Egypt, was saved by God, even though it was just a physical salvation. Now, while both of them or either of them could be meant here, it's probably the second that God is the the Savior. He delivers out of the hand of the enemy. That's in view here. Again, this is another area where we could easily be overwhelmed with fear. I've got enemies. There are people who want to hurt me. There are people who want to destroy me. He says, I don't fear them because you're my salvation. You're the one who delivers. Not only is the Lord his salvation, he is my stronghold. My stronghold. Notice this in verse 1 as well. It says, Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. That word strength there can also be translated stronghold. That's how it most often is translated in the Bible. A place of fortification, a fortress, a stronghold, a place where he is kept safe. It probably could refer to like a mountain fortress. Uh, In the Judean desert, there's a place called Masada. It was a desert fortress built by Herod the Great. Some people think that maybe David even stayed up in that mountain when he was fleeing from Saul. But centuries later, Herod built a fortress on top of Masada, and it's, it's an impressive place to go. It's basically sheer cliffs on every side and a flat, level surface on the top of the mountain. And there's walls, there's cisterns, there's uh, some shells of leftover buildings up there still. But in about 73 A.D., uh, a group of Jewish rebels fortified themselves at Masada. And about 900 Jewish rebels held out against 10,000 Roman regular soldiers for about a year. That tells you something about how fortified and how strong that stronghold of Masada was. That 10,000 trained Roman soldiers couldn't get in for a year against 900 poorly armed Jewish rebels. That's what he's saying here. The Lord is my stronghold, the place that I can go to where I'm kept safe, where I am protected, the place where I am at peace. You know, it reminds me very much of what Paul says in Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? Because of this, he says, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? David has no reason for fear because he trusts, he has this confident faith in the Lord. Again, we can be so overwhelmed with fear because of unforeseen circumstances, dangerous situations that come up, other things that would rock our boat, but we have a God who is, if our trust is in him, he is our light, he is our strength, he is our salvation. Look at what happens, though. He, he spells out what it means to not be afraid. Verse 2, he says, When the wicked came against me to eat my flesh and my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. So God protected him against his enemies, whoever they might have been at this point. 
You see, the reason he's not afraid is because he's seen this happen. And then he says in verse 3, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, and the war should rise up against me, I, in this I will be confident. So even though I might be outnumbered, even though I might be surrounded, even though I might be at every disadvantage, he says, the Lord is with me, and so in that I remain confident. This uh, verse 3 reminds me very much of the story of Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah was in Jerusalem, and there was an Assyrian king named Sennacherib who was besieging Israel and, and laughing at Israel's God. Who will save you from my hand, he said. Well, Hezekiah put the letter of Sennacherib out on the, the floor and prayed and said, Lord, see their threats, deliver us. And God, in that night, destroyed the Assyrian army and drove them away. It's that kind of thing that inspires David's faith. That's the God he's trusting in. He says, in this I am confident. And we come back around to that idea, faith's confidence. It's not confidence in ourselves. It's confidence in God and what he can do. Confidence in anything that is not God will surely disappoint us, whether it's in ourselves or in somebody else. The only confidence we can have is in God. That sets up this great psalm. Faith's confidence, but we also want to take note of faith's desire. I want to drive towards this point. Faith's desire, faith's aim, goal. With eyes fixed on the Lord, David explains here his sole desire in life. Look at it in verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, I personally find ultimate questions difficult to answer. And by ultimate questions, I mean questions that are in the superlative, like what do you think is the best or the most or uh, something like that. Like if you ask me the question, what do you think is the greatest book ever written besides the Bible? That's a hard question to answer. You know, greatest fiction book, greatest uh, theology book. What, what, what are we asking about here? It's, it's hard to categorize what's the greatest. And even questions about preference, I think, are difficult to answer. Like, well, what's your favorite color? Well, I have a lot of colors that I like. Some that I might even say are some of my favorites, but I probably wouldn't decorate my house in some of those colors. Doesn't mean I don't like them. So it's kind of like, well, in what condition, in what circumstance? Well, here David kind of makes an ultimate statement. This one thing I desire, he says. That really ought to get your attention. In fact, look at verse 4. He says, one thing I've desired, that will I seek. It's almost like he's, he's leading into this statement, drawing you in. This one thing I desire. This is what I'm seeking. And you're kind of like, well, what is it, David? Tell me. And he says, to dwell in the house of the Lord. That's his one desire. That's what he longs for. That's what faith wants, to dwell in the house of the Lord. I, I never really noticed it much before I was studying this week in Psalm 27. How, many, how much uh, reflection this is of Psalm 23? You know, Psalm 23, we know very well, the shepherd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. But you remember how it ends? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now he says, one thing I desire, and that's that to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, he's not saying that he wants to be a priest here, which uh, some people kind of get off on. 
The idea is he wants to be at the place where God is. Uh, really, what he's expressing is the psalmist's goal of pursuing God. That's what he wants. Pursuing God. That's his one desire. One thing that's most important to him. If we looked at the New Testament, we might look at Paul's words in Philippians 3, where he says, um, Indeed, I count all things as loss compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For Paul, that was the one thing. I want to know Christ. I want to press on to know the Lord. Well, it seems like David is saying the same thing here. One thing I desire from the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. I want to be where God is. The tangible expression of God was there at the tabernacle. The temple wouldn't be built until his son Solomon constructed it, but the tabernacle or temple was the place where God's presence was. And he says, that's where I want to be. If that's where God is, I want to be there. It's not just that he wants to be there for religious observance, but to know God. It is, however, interesting to me that he does want to be in the place where God's people worship. I'm not saying that our one desire should be, I want to go to church. I think our one desire ought to be to know Christ, to know the Lord, to press on to know him more. But it is significant that the place where we oftentimes learn the most about God is, is in a church. Uh, and yet, I think if you, you really nailed people down or, or at least got them to answer honestly, you know, what really gets you excited? What's the one thing in the week that you look forward to more than anything? I doubt it's people saying, well, I, wanna, I can't wait to go to church on Sunday and learn about the Lord. In fact, we, we almost act like the entertainments of the world are of greater importance to us than the gathering of God's people. But here, he says, one thing I desire, to be in the house of the Lord. Not only that, but he says in verse 5, uh, excuse me, verse 4, to behold the beauty of the Lord. That's, that's the reason he wants to be there in the house, is to behold God's beauty, to see the Lord as he is, to understand what he's like. Now, we have no tabernacle with a glory cloud around it today. There's no temple needed any longer because God takes up his residence in us. However, we can come to behold the beauty of God in his word. We can study and know him more when we study and know scripture. Even reading the Psalms is a great place to start because as you go through, you get to start to see, yes, God is my light. God is a shepherd to us. God is a glorious king. And the more we begin to to wrap our heads around those descriptions and better understand God as he is, the more we are following faith's desire, faith's aim of knowing God more, knowing him better. Hosea 6.3 says, Let us press on to know the Lord. It's another way of saying to behold his beauty. We should want to know his character, his works, his mind, his, his word keep going though in verse 4 he says to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple Hmm. to inquire in his temple it seems the psalmist here wants to hear from God I want to be able to inquire of the Lord again not not in a mystical way but we have access to the mind of God in the scriptures 
That if we want to inquire of the Lord, if we want to know his ways, if we want to hear from him, as it were, we hear from him in the word. So we study the scriptures. We know it. There's so much value. The Bible is not just an interesting book to have around, one with some kind of fascinating stories or one that uh, provides our content for preaching on Sunday morning. But it's a book in which we come to know the living God. So treat it as such. Study the word, not just to check off the first item on your daily list, but study it to know him, to know the Lord. Inquire of him. David illustrates, I think, here what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. His heart is here because he treasures the Lord. He longed for God. You know, this is a very personal thing, pursuing God. John Calvin once stated, faith is not a distant view, but a warm embrace of Christ. So it ought to be that faith's desire is not just to know a few things more, but to embrace our Lord, to love him more. But in pursuing God, David also is finding refuge in the Lord. You notice this verse 5, he says, At the in the time of trouble... He shall hide me in his pavilion in a secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me and he shall set me upon a high rock. You know, though David longed to spend his days in the tabernacle, in the presence of God, that wasn't reality, at least not at the time of writing. He was a man on the run. He's you know, out in the wilderness or whatever. But he didn't need to have a temple to be near to God. The Lord was his refuge even when things were not well, even when he's on the run. And he says, in my time of trouble, that's, that's the setting here for verse 5, in my time of trouble, he shall hide me. He's going to take care of me. Even though I don't have a tabernacle and even though there's no place to worship, God is still near to me and he protects me. You know, those troubles may rise. A person whose faith is solely fixed on the Lord will find refuge in him. You probably know this well-known verse in Isaiah. He writes, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So though there is trouble for David, he has a refuge. He finds a refuge in Christ, in the Lord, who is the one who is able to protect him. He talks up here about being set upon a high rock. The word rock here indicates kind of a large boulder. Uh, we sang a few moments ago, rock of ages. You know, this cleft. A place of protection. A place where he can take shelter is the idea. Uh, just the other day I was telling Ashley, one of my favorite things, especially about this time of year, is I love, and, and this may sound a little weird to some of you, I love really windy nights. And I know it kind of messes with your patio furniture and you know stuff like that but I love being able to go to bed and you can hear the wind just whistling outside and you hear it blowing and stuff flapping around and leaves flying in the wind and the reason I love it is because I'm in a warm bed and I can sit there and listen to it and I can think to myself like outside everything's cold and windy but right here I'm in my snug warm bed and it just makes it that much more comfortable I don't know I love to be able to hear that wind because it reminds me that I have a place, a refuge, away from the wind, away from the storm, that I'm warm and comfortable. And that's kind of what 
David is saying here. He says, you know, the Lord, in my time of trouble, he's, he's going to hide me in the secret place. He's going to set me upon the rock. He'll be my refuge. The man who's pursuing God and finding refuge is also the man who is singing praise. Look at verse 6. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. He's going to have victory. He says, therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. He's going to be lifted up above his enemies. And he's going to be singing praise to God. It's it's overflow of worship from a heart that's seeking God. A heart that is fixed upon the Lord. This is the, the reality of faith's desire. It's, it's wanting to know Christ more, but it results in praise. So if faith's desire is to know God more, then we ought to be growing in, in the depth of our understanding and our love for God. But at the same time, growing more worshipful. These are the words of uh, J. Gresham Machen, who was the last of the great Princeton theologians in America. He once said, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust him. The greater our progress in theology, the simpler and more childlike our faith will be. It's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? The deeper you go into theology, the more you study of of God, which sounds like a very uh, taxing exercise. It says the result should be that we are more trusting and more childlike in our faith should be. So I guess the question that confronts us here is, well, what's the one thing that you desire? I think if you went out and asked people just at random, you know, what's the one thing you want in life? I bet you would get a lot of altruistic answers, things like, well, I want to I want to have an impact in the world. I want to raise a family that's, you know, good and decent. But what's the one thing that you desire? One thing that if you could pin it on, say, that's what I want more than anything. Would you say, I want to know the Lord, that I want to dwell in his house? I want to come to see his beauty more and more? If that's your answer, if you say, yes, I agree with David on this point, then does our life in any way reflect that? It's one thing to say, I want to know the Lord. But then you neglect his word. You neglect uh, that time of, of prayer, you neglect all those means by which we come to know God better, then how true is it really? Our actions show that we're seeking the one thing that we desire is actually ten things, and none of them are the Lord. If our faith is not driving us to want to know the Lord with all of our being, something is deficient with our faith. I want to keep moving though, because there's a lot in the Psalm and I can't cover everything to equal depth. But I want to turn us now to faith's plea. So we've seen faith's confidence, faith's desire, and then faith's plea. So in verse 7, there's a shift. The first six verses of the psalm are all pretty positive. Trusting in the Lord, not being afraid, and then it turns into a prayer. Some people have suggested that these are maybe two psalms that got fused together at some point, but I don't think so. I think what we have here is a perfect example of what we see all over in the psalms. That is, Faith, but also hard realities. Hard realities. Um, Faith's plea turns in seven. Now he's crying out to the Lord, making a request. 
So let's never assume that having faith means smooth sailing. Faith doesn't mean that we're totally unfazed by attacks or that you know, enemies or anxiety will never uh, rock our boats. However, faith does put those types of things into perspective. Again, faith, remember, is being fixed on the Lord. It helps those things and bring them into their proper perspective and helps us to be, have a more steady footing than we would otherwise. So let me read verses 7 through 12. This is the plea of the psalmist. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, your face Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, for such as would breathe out violence. So it's an amazing prayer. It has the elements we might, would expect from the Psalms. He cries out, you know, hear my voice, O Lord. Uh, have mercy. Do not hide your face. Do not forsake me. All those are seen elsewhere in the Psalms. And there's a lot we could focus on in this plea. But I believe the heart of the prayer is in verse 8. There he says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. It kind of stands out in this prayer. Because again, it's not a request. It's almost like the psalmist is remembering. And it's, it's a notoriously difficult verse to translate because who's saying, seek my face, and who's talking to whom? But it seems like he's reciting. You said, Lord. In other words, Lord, you told me to seek your face. So he in turn told his own heart, your face, Lord, I will seek. So he's, it's kind of like he's obeying the Lord's command and having to remind his own heart of it in the process. Your face I'm going to seek. Again, fixed on the Lord. That's the main idea here. This really captures what David said earlier, you know, the desire to know and follow God. This is the heart of his plea. Lord, I've set my heart to seek you. Do not hide yourself from me. Don't withdraw from me. That's the overall theme here that he's getting across. Look at verse 9. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Do not leave me or forsake me. Now, we have the promise in the New Testament. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. His prayer is, Lord, I want to I know you, but I don't want to be, I don't want to have this feeling of being abandoned by you. I want to draw closer and closer. I want to seek your face. Then you have this statement, which is a statement of faith in the midst of a prayer. Verse 10 says, when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Now, we don't have any record that David's father and mother ever turned their back on him. In fact, we have some evidence to the contrary. I think David is simply saying this as a general principle. The closest, some of the closest relationships you can have on earth is a parent and a child. Saying, even if they turn their back on me, the Lord never will. It reminded me of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is in prison about to, really awaiting his execution. He says, at my trial, everyone abandoned me. No one stood with me except the Lord. The Lord was with me, even in that moment of trial. Then in verse uh, 11, 
says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a smooth path because of my enemies. Regarding this transition from verse 10 to 11, Derek Kidner, who's a prolific Old Testament commentator, writes, David is not only a worshiper seeking God's face, he is also a pilgrim committed to his way. Verse 11. He goes on to say, the prayer for a level path is not for comfort, but for sure progress. In other words, he's saying, Lord, smooth the path before me. The the snares of my enemies that they would place down for my feet, clear those out of the way so that I can make progress. He's praying really for deliverance, the very thing God said he would provide since he is my salvation. I see faith's plea, but I want to end on faith's posture because this is really where I want to land. Really, verses 13 and 14 could be a sermon of its own. It says there, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your hearts. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So verse 13 as I said, deserves kind of a sermon of its own. The idea here is he's saying, he's saying something along the lines of, I would have lost heart. Uh, I think all of us probably have understood at some time or another where we are teetering on the edge of faith and despair. You know what I mean? We want to believe, but at the same time we look around and all the evidence is to the contrary. And that's kind of what he's saying. He's, I almost gave up. Like, I would have lost heart if I hadn't held on firmly to faith, this posture of believing. But he doesn't end there. He says, I would have lost heart. I would have despaired. I would have looked around and said, there is no hope, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He continued to believe that God's goodness would shine even in dark times. He believed that not only in the age to come, but in the, in the very now moment, he would experience God's blessings and benefits. I read the story of a town in England during World War II. During a nighttime air raid, the Germans bombed the city until basically into rubble. And as uh, the morning after, when people were coming in to clean up the debris of the bombings, they found the wreckage of a chapel as they began to pull off large bits of stone and rebar. They found a Bible in the midst with this page open to Psalm 27, verse 13. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And the story of that discovery of this open Bible in the wreckage quickly made its rounds around England. And for many, it was a a call to trust in the Lord. Even though things are bleak right now, even though there's bombs falling on our country, we believe that we will see God's goodness. And so people turn to the Lord in faith. And that's the kind of hope we have. Not just a hope that things are going to work out in the ever after, but that things will work out for God's good. Now, it may not be pleasant. This isn't a promise that things are always going to go smoothly and we're never going to have an interruption or pain or difficulty. But I think it is an affirmation that God does give blessings here. Now, honestly, if we never got any earthly blessings and all of God's favor and, and 
benefits awaited for us in the coming life and eternal life, that would be more than enough, wouldn't it? And yet, all of us can talk about times when God has showered blessings on us and benefits. We have seen his goodness, even here in the land of the living. There are really two essential lessons, I think, that we need to learn from these last two verses. First is a a lesson we need to learn of trust. We need to learn to trust. And that's what he's talking about in verse 13. Trusting even when we don't see it. Faith is a matter of walking without seeing. Hebrews 11 is a great example. You have these heroes of the faith who trusted God before the harvest could be seen. They trusted God for the reward. In the same way, the psalmist looks around and nearly gives up hope, but he looks through the grim the grim atmosphere of the present, and he has faith. He trusts what he does not see. It's because faith is being fixed on the Lord. He can be counted on. We can trust because the Lord will not fail. So we need to learn to trust, but secondly, we also need to learn to wait. Oh boy, that's a tall order, isn't it? Waiting is a hard thing for us. You know, in modern American culture, we value being busy. We're always you know, rushing around doing stuff. We want to get things done. We want to see progress. Waiting is hard. We want what we want, and we want it now. But look what he says in verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your hearts. Wait, I say, on the Lord. In the midst of not fearing, he also says you're going to have to wait a little bit. In fact, he doubles it up in verse 14. You know, Wait on the Lord is the first statement and the last statement, as if to drive it home. The two middle sections, be of good courage and he will strengthen your hearts, really talks to us. Not only are we to wait, but he says have courage. Not man-made courage. Why? Because the next verse, the Lord will strengthen your heart. It's not that you have to just conjure up this courage yourself, but rather the Lord strengthens us. Ever had to wait for the Lord to do something? Maybe a prayer request, maybe some need you have. Waiting on the Lord is a difficult thing because it does take courage. It does take bravery to wait for him because things may be crumbling. Things may look dark and you say, I've got to do something. I've got to, I've got to go out and, and handle this myself when really it's like, well, Lord, if you're going to do something, I need to be patient and wait. It's a posture. A posture of waiting, a posture of trust. So I guess the question would be, how patient is your faith? Are you willing to let the Lord determine the timetable for answering your prayers? Or is it something we become excessively anxious about? Psalm 27 is really a psalm about faith. And there's some of these verses could be entire sermons. I mean, this is such rich ground in which to plow. But I think about those heroes of faith in generations past. You, know, you think about David in the psalm, Mary Moffat in the illustration that we began with. You know, how could we ever be people of faith like that? So I get back to the, my initial question is, well, if their faith is so big, how do we get to have Psalm 27 kind of faith? Well, let me say this. It's developed over a lifetime of trusting God. There's no take this pill and you know, do this exercise and immediately faith will begin to grow. It's something that's developed over a lifetime. But there are steps that we can take. And let me suggest three of them right now. Number one, fix your gaze on the Lord. 
fix your gaze on the Lord. Again, that's the essence of what faith is. We're so easily distracted. We're looking at so many things. I think a lot of us would have trouble answering, what's the one thing you desire? I don't know. There's, there's too many things I desire. I can't name just one. The psalmist says, one thing I desire to know Christ, to, to, to behold his beauty, to dwell in his temple. Fix your gaze on him. When he is solely at the center, when, when we're looking to God every single day, faith begins to grow. I mean, why is the psalmist unafraid of his enemies in verse 1? It's because the Lord is my light. He's got his eyes fixed on the Lord, not on the enemies. So fix your gaze on the Lord. Secondly, remember the Lord's favor. Remember the Lord's favor, particularly in trials. Uh, you know, the psalmist can look and say, God, you've done this for me. You know, he sees the goodness of God, even in his circumstances, even when things are difficult. And, and that reminds him that even though when things look to despair, he has faith because he remembers the Lord's favor. And the third one I would suggest that builds this kind of faith is pray honest prayers. I mean, that's what the psalmist is doing here. I mean, if the psalm did, in fact, end at verse 6, we might walk away saying, wow, what a, what a tremendous man of faith. I don't know if I could ever do that. But then you hear him cry out in verse 7, Lord, hear my voice. Don't hide your face from me. You get sort of the honesty, the, the rawness of his prayer. That I'm not saying he was not a man of faith. He certainly was. But if we're going to be developing ourselves into people of faith, we need to pray honest prayers. You know, cry out to the Lord with truly how we feel. Cry out to the Lord in our times of need. You know, when we learn to pray that way, I think it helps us to trust God more fully. It's, it's almost like in the Psalms when you see the psalmist doing this, it's almost as if he's working through it himself. Usually the, the Psalms will start off with a, a request, you know, pleading with the Lord, and then he works his way towards faith and trust. And that's really the pattern that we have for ourselves, that you know, as we bring our requests to God, well, that's when the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, comes. It's when we take our needs to him. So pray honest prayers. I'm not saying you're going to become people of faith overnight, but these are some steps that are going to put you on the right course to, to being the kind of person who trusts the Lord, who's not afraid of their enemies, and who can be confident that God will do and be all that he is, faithful always to his people.